0: Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? for the authorities are ministers of God, according, or attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. We are striving to be a family together. Not a, you know, a bunch of individuals, but not just a, a family that has families, but a family. And part of that means that there's some mess and some imperfection as a part of this each time we gather. But it's important for us as the family of God in Christ to, to gather around and get caught up in the story of God and what God would have us do. And we gather around the Word each and, every week and and for 11 chapters through the book of Romans, we've been caught up in the most important part of that, that story, and, and that's kind of God's sign, right? What God has done to reconcile sinners to himself. That's Romans 1 through 11. And then in chapter 12, he, he moved a little bit more to, all right, now what's our response to all that God has done? And, and that response, starting in, in chapter 12, is an all-in response. We're to be a people who are all-in with God, who belong totally to him, That's the Christian life that Paul has been describing since chapter 12, verse 1. And if we're going to live all in, if we're going to present our very lives, ourselves, our whole lives as a sacrifice to God, living and acceptable and pleasing to Him, th- then it's going to take verse 2 of chapter 12, right? We're, we're not going to need to be conformed to the pattern of this world in present age, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that's going to take place as we, as we set our gaze and, and eyes on Christ, as we look to His Word to transform our thinking. Paul knew that Christians were in need of some direct renewal of their minds in certain areas of their lives, right? And, and the present age is very eager to uh, form our minds in certain areas and more eager in some areas than others. And, and one of those areas where the present age is eager to form and that needs some specific and direct renewal is this area of governing authorities. Paul talks about it here in chapter thirteen, verse one through seven. He talks about it in First Timothy. He talks about it when he writes to Titus as well. So he repeats this because this is something I mean, we need some direct renewal here. The the church that he wrote to, the Roman church, was a, a mixed church. It, it had some. Some, those who had some Jewish roots and had become Christians and those who, many who weren't, those with some Jewish roots would have had some questions about the rights and legitimacy of the Roman authority and the Roman government. You think about Mark chapter 12, they're trying to kind of catch Jesus in his words and they say, well, is it right to pay taxes? Like that would have been a legitimate question to them. Should we be paying taxes if we're serving the one true living God? Do we need to actually... Give something to Caesar. Or you get a sense of this in the restlessness of the apostles when Jesus had been, uh, after his resurrection, for 40 days spending time with them, teaching them. They, they have that sense of restlessness and a desire for a new and better kingdom to come. And so they ask him, hey, is it time to restore the kingdom? Like, well, you're going to overthrow the Romans now, right? Isn't that part of this whole thing? And so you, you get a sense of how they would have questioned the rights of, of governing authorities, Further, in in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, the the emperor was Claudius at the time, and he ejected all of the Jews from Rome. And when Paul writes, we think that they've probably returned at this point. That seems to be clear in his letter that he's writing to these Romans, that the the Jews are back into the mix and in the church. And so Jewish Christians were, were in need of some helpful instruction. What are we to make of a guy that just says, get out of our city, and then all of a sudden we can come back? The Greeks that would have been associated with them within the church are now those who are going to be lumped together. So if you're going to hang out with this crew and and belong to one another as the Scripture has called you to belong to, then, then we're going to tag on whatever we're tagging on to some of these Jews and those who have Jewish roots along with you. And so what are they to think about this? How are they going to? Uh, navigate these. They would have needed instructions too. They would have needed instructions because they're, they're moving from saying that, that Caesar is Lord to Jesus is Lord. And so what do we, to make of that, how do we navigate this life? Or they're going to need some instructions because they're going to suffer. That Caesar being Lord sometimes is not going to be good news For those in the church, the present age, in other words, had certainly formed them in certain ways. And so Paul writes to address them and to transform their thinking here, their views here by the renewal of their minds. And I wonder if current Christians are any less need of a transformed view in this specific area. Clearly, I think we think the answer is no, right? The, the present age is all too eager to form us on our uh, opinions and ideas of governing authorities and what that should look like. And my concern is that most are likely more formed by a screen than by Scripture. That, that more are probably formed by sitting at a table with those they like and want to hear from than sitting with the Scripture and letting it speak to them. Now, now, those things aren't necessarily incompatible all the time, but often they form us in ways that are not according to the Scripture. And so Paul writes to transform our views. Then we wouldn't be conformed to this present age, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And here's what he says, Christian. Here's 13, 1 through 7. Be subject to the governing authorities. He, he doesn't address the topic exhaustively. A lot more generally. Principially, but that's actually good news. So that it can cross cultures and time and be sufficient for all of us who come to it ready for our minds to be transformed. So the relationship that is between Christians and the governing authorities is what he addresses, and it matters obviously to daily life and to daily witness. Listen to what he says in chapter 13, verse 1 again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He appeals to each person, right? No one is exempt from this command. And the command is be subject to governing authorities. And the context, I think, shows us clearly that these governing authorities that he has in mind are some sort of state power, right? They're levying taxes later that he says to pay. These authorities are earthly civil authorities. These are human rulers. That's who he's addressing here. And the Christian, he says, really clear, really general, be subject to these governing authorities. It's interesting that he uses those words, be subject. He doesn't use submission or obedience, other words that he uses other places. He says, be subject. That there's a, a sense, a, a hint, a touch, an emphasis on the voluntary nature of that. Be subject. The, the governing authorities here are not commanded, go and make this happen. Christians are commanded, be subject. So it's a, a subjection that's willingly given. And before we start rolling our eyes, let's know that Paul said this with eyes wide open, right? He knew of Roman crucifixions. He he knew of Claudius kicking Jews out of Rome. That's an unjust thing to do. He knew of corrupt taxes and corrupt tax collectors and tax practices. He knew of the depravity of emperors. He knew of the depravity of senators and centurions and all of the Roman world. This is the same Paul that wrote chapter 1, right? Where in Romans chapter 1, he gives us a great view of the depravity of man. He's the same Paul that wrote that as writing in chapter 13. Here is what he says. And he writes chapter 13 with chapter 1 fully in view. Here's what he's saying. Although they knew God, they didn't honor God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling, resembling mortal man birds and animals and creeping things. Doesn't sound like a good picture. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and among themselves, and we could go on. Paul knows that could describe some of the governing authorities that he's telling Christians to be subject to. And with all of that knowledge, he tells the Roman church, be subject to the governing authorities. To Christians, being subject to authority it is not a repugnant idea it's not a repulsive idea in the slightest right what do we say what's our ancient confession jesus is lord being subject to one over us is actually becomes one of our greatest joys as a christian christians know the joy of being subjected to the greatest authority overall we know the joy of living under good reign and good authority under the Lord Jesus. And so being subject to an authority is not repulsive or repugnant, but because our ultimate authority is Jesus and He is the one who is Lord, whatever kind of authority that we also need to be subject to really matters to us because we need to know how it fits under the lordship of Jesus. And so the right kind of authority and subjection ought to be a a matter of huge importance to us. And that's what Paul gets at. Be subject to the governing authorities for... There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He, he kind of says the same thing twice, a little bit positively, uh, or negatively, and then more positively. All right, the reason to be subject is given two times. No authority except from God. That's one way to say it, and then we could, we could flip it the other way. And say those that exist have been instituted by God. And so he wants Christians to have no mistake, right? Don't miss this. We know who the supreme authority is and where ultimate authority resides. That's not a question. That resides with the Lord. He is the supreme authority. And then what he's saying is that there's some derived authority from Him. And that Christians ought to be subject to that derived authority. Think about all the ways that God has instituted and set up, ordained other earthly governing authorities. Saul. Saul. Who chose Saul to be king of Israel? God, God did. He instituted that. He set it up. Who, who chose David? Like Samuel's going out and he's like, well, I think it might be this brother. He's like, no, it's not that one. He goes all the way down. Who, who did that? Who directed that? God did. It's God ordained. You right, think about Cyrus and Isaiah. He is the one who's considered the Lord's anointed. Who anointed him to be an instrument for the means of God? Well, God did. Or you think of Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. It says that God sets up kings, and he also brings them down, right? He's the one who removes kings, and he sets up kings. It's God. Nebuchadnezzar finds this out really, really clearly in, in Daniel chapter 4, where he says, hey, look at all that I've done. And God's like, actually, I'm the one who's the supreme one. And so he turns him into a beast for a while, and then he has to him. Like, who does that? Who, who removes him and sets him up? God does those things. Or in John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus speaking to Pilate, and he says, hey, you would have no authority unless it was given to you. Because God instituted and ordained authority. All authority is by God's sovereign will. Their power, their right to exist, their source of authority, it all comes from God. Now what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that all authorities are going to rule well and, and wield that authority well and do it good job of that. What's in here when it says that God has ordained and instituted all authority is God's mysterious unrevealed to us but yet still sovereign will over all things this is the same god who works all things mysteriously for good the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose it's that kind of unrevealed mysterious will that is ordaining and instituting all authorities good bad and everywhere in between we think of ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 he says he works all things according to the counsel of his will and and some of those things that work to the counsel of his will are actually in and of themselves those are wicked things and yet they're still working according to the counsel of the will of god or some of the things of the Romans eight twenty eight, all things that are working for a good are actually inherently in themselves. They're evil things, but he is using those things as fellow workers for the good of those who love him and for his glory. Some of the things that these governing authorities are going to do are going to be against the will of God and that his, against his revealed, commanded will, and yet still be working in according to the counsel of his overarching sovereign will. That's what he's getting at here. Kings are going to break God's commands... They're going to abuse authority, but all without exception are in place by the sovereign will of God. And because that's true, he says, Christians be subject to the governing authorities. Paul roots subjection to governing authorities, not in their goodness, not in their wisdom, not in their power, not in their might, not in the length and breadth and width of their kingdom or of their knowledge. He roots it down deep in God's ultimate authority. That is God's Authority is where we're placing our obedience to this command. Governing authorities rule because of God, the sovereign one, ordain them to rule. And because that's true, we need to follow the commands of God in this arena and be subject to the governing authorities. Could there be a better reason to willingly subject ourselves to someone or something? Our God has commanded it. That's a good reason. It's tied to His authority. That's a good reason. So knowing and trusting that God is the ultimate authority leads to obeying the commands that He has given. To Obeying the the command to be subject to the governing authorities because that's what He said to do. And we know and love Him, and so we want to do what He has told us to do. If the motive and the reason for obeying and being subject to the governing authorities has something to do with the governing authorities in and of themselves, then this could be a really hard command to walk out, couldn't it? Though let's also admit that it would have been harder for Daniel, harder for Paul, harder for almost everyone else in history. But he still says, Christians, be subject to the governing authorities because there's no authority except from God, and those that exist, exist by God. Look no further for a reason to be subject to the governing authorities. And our willingness to be subject to those governing authorities, because those things are true, is tied to our willingness to be subject to God. Because He's the one who instituted them. He's the one who put them into place. So Christian, here's this general command. General command, be subject to the governing authorities. And this general command should be guiding, generally, our relationship with the governing authorities and perhaps even as you hear that there's there's these all these yeah but what what about this what if this and you think about all these exceptions and paul doesn't list every possible circumstance every possible situation every single exception he gives a general command he gives the same kind of general command in titus chapter 3 verse 1 so it's not as if this is like a a one-off and he's just doing something here He, he does the same thing for titus as he's Working, says Be submissive to the rulers and authorities. Peter does the same thing. You look in 1 Peter chapter 2. Again they don't go into every detail. They give very a uh, good general way to look at it. He says be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be, by, be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be, be subject to them. And since this is the general command under Let's be honest, worse conditions and rulers than what we currently face Then the general disposition, the general attitude, the general sentiment toward governing authorities ought to be what Paul commands here. Be subject to them. One comment, uh, there's a commentary that just said this real, real briefly. I don't have this on the screen, but it says it's easy to talk about cases where Paul's teaching doesn't apply, but in most cases it should. That's the idea. And so our general disposition should be to willingly subject ourselves to the governing authorities, not complain of our duty toward them. Peter and Paul could make all kinds of cases, right, of why they shouldn't be subject to governing authorities that were over them. Like, hey, they're using my tax dollars to kill people that I love, that kind of stuff. But they still say, be subject. They could complain, man, I can't believe the Romans kicked you guys out of Rome, Right? How could they have done that? They don't complain. They say, be subject to the governing authorities. Our general sentiment should be more subjection, less don't tread on me defiance. If that's not kind of the general sentiment, the general attitude, the general disposition, then then we might have a God problem before we have a governing authorities problem. Because that's where he roots it, right here. Now certainly there are exceptions, right? But this general command, this general principle should check all of our reasons. Before we move to don't tread on me defiance, we should have all those things checked by this command. And Christians are those who are trying to what? What are we trying to do? Chapter 12 told us we're to be those who are trying to be honorable in the sight of all and to live peaceably with all as far as it depends on us. And that certainly includes the authorities that Paul speaks of here. And so the general command, be subject to these governing authorities, is to govern and think through. Help us think through how we are to relate to them. God has ordained and instituted governing authorities, and so Christian, he says, be subject to them. Now this leads to all kinds of implications. If, if verse one is true, if, if God has instituted these things, if there's none that exist except by God, then what flows naturally from that assertion is given in verse two. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This is weighty stuff, because what does he say? You're going to incur judgment. Like We need to be careful with what we do here before we we say we need to defy the the governing authorities. We need to be careful because there's there's judgment tied to these kinds of things, and so we need to check again, check our disposition, check our attitude, check our sentiment toward the governing authorities before we're not going to be subject to them. Because there's judgment that we can incur here. And and no doubt there are all kinds of questions that are tied to this about, well, when should we resist or not? But Paul, again, he gives a general principle, general command with no qualifications. And we start thinking, are there some? And and of course there are some. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys need to bow down and worship this idol or I will burn you. They say, well, our God can deliver us. He he will. But even if he doesn't, we're going to worship him. Daniel, right? He, he comes along and, like, you need to stop praying to God. You only pray to this image. And like, nah, I'll pray to God. <laughs> okay, we're going to throw you in the lions. And, like, go ahead. And they do. Peter, they tell him, hey, you need to stop proclaiming the gospel. Stop talking about Jesus. And he says, we've got to obey God and not men. And so, if there's a conflict between Submission to governing authorities and submission to God. Well, well, clearly we we go with subjection to God and not subjection to governing authorities. This side of Eden, there's going to be some conflict at times, right? It's going to happen. And we obey God rather than men. And that's when we employ that. But we need to be careful there, right? We're not obeying God rather than men because things aren't going our way politically. It's because we're saying, if I don't, if I do what you say, I will disobey God. And I won't disobey God. That should be unthinkable to us because he, I belong wholly to him. And because I belong wholly to him, I have to obey him and not you. It, we, we don't obey God rather than men because things aren't going our way politically or because we didn't get our personal preference on some sort of policy that we don't like or because we don't like the authorities themselves. It must be an obedience to God versus an obedience to governing authorities issue in order for us to resist. Not my likes versus what the government likes. Now, all those qualifications aren't explored here, but I think they're clear and generally accepted throughout the scriptures. Christians should tread carefully because what is clear is that we need to be subject to the governing authorities and that there is judgment attached to how we respond to this, to the wrong kind of resistance, we could say. There's judgment that we can incur. And while this judgment ultimately, I think, has God's judgment in mind, judgment from these governing authorities is still likely in view because of what we read in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. Paul is going to give us a a brief snapshot of of the role of governing authorities. And here's the role that he starts to spell out. They, They are to be a terror to bad conduct, and there's some punishment in view in that sense. That's why you might have fear of the one who's in authority, because associated with bad conduct is this fear that you will face consequences. Well, Paul isn't hinting at the abuse of this punishment. He, he's talking about legitimate use of this that, that in a way that curtails evil, that hems that it in a bit. That's part of the role of governing authorities. like They are to be a terror to bad judgment in a way that, that slows it down and stops it. There's a circle like you can't go beyond this. It's not talking about abuse. Of their authority, talk about legitimate use of it. Think about driving in the car. Right? When I drive past the highway patrolman and I'm going the speed limit, I feel fine. Right? When I drive past the highway patrolman and I'm going way over the speed limit, and then I start my my heart rate starts to kick up, and then I'm immediately I'm checking all the mirrors. Like, you know, you're supposed to be doing that all the time, but now all of a sudden I'm checking like 400 times faster. I'm like, did he turn around? Did he catch me? Is he going to stop me? You know, like that's the kind of thing that he wants the governing authorities to do, like. Put an end to conduct, or put some fear in people for some conduct that would be outside the limits, that would be bad conduct, and that's kind of the thing that he has in view here. There's a fear of a ticket for the highway patrolman. He's saying the, the governing authorities can do that. And so part of how God is going to rule His creation, rule man, is through these governing authorities punishing evil and commending the good. All right, verse three says that. All right? There are to be a terror to good, to bad conduct, not to good conduct, but to bad, and Then do what is good, and you're going to receive approval. And then he's going to tell us a little bit more in verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Two times in verse 4, he labels the governing authorities as the servant of God. Two times. There are many labels that we could put on the Governing authorities. We could describe them in all kinds of ways throughout history and throughout biblical history. And and this is one of them. God's servants. All of them are carrying out a role appointed by God as God's servants. Now that they're servants of God tells them where their authority is. It's in God himself. Right? They serve should be serving at the discretion of god that is they are under his rule and his authority and and the more that that's recognized by those authorities and by those under their authority the the better i think it will be for all people some are more or less faithful to this but but they're all god's servants in some capacity fellow workmen for the purposes of god because all things are working to according to the counsel of his will And the role of the servant of God, building on what he said in verse 3, is to be God's servant, look what he says, for your good. Governing authorities are part of the means that God employs for the good of his people. He doesn't intend to harm, he intends good through these governing authorities. In in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I want to urge you, and I think that this is kind of filling in. What what does Paul mean by saying he's they're there for your good right here i think he says i urge you that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people for for kings and all who are in high positions for what what purpose what do we want what are we getting out of this what are we trying to pray for that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way and this is this is good but what's the good that that god hopes will be accomplished through governing authorities i think it's the good of a a peaceful and quiet life That's, I think, the good he's after, right? But there to be a terror to the bad conduct in verse 4 of chapter 13, he says, if you do wrong, be afraid. They, They don't bear the sword in vain. They do bear a sword. God has given the authority of the sword to the governing authorities. This is an authority that is an instrument. The sword is an instrument of justice, of penalty for actual evil. And so in the New Testament, here's. The, the penalties that we would have seen, the, the punishments, like fines, arrests, imprisonment, corporal punishment, exile, all of them are known in the New Testament and probably would have been in the mind of Paul's readers as he said that they bear a sword. Sword certainly carries the connotation of death as it's part of the authority given to the governing authorities by God. So when they ever thought of sword, when the Roman church is hearing sword, certainly they, what came to their mind was death. And you think of, of Jesus like... The, he says to Peter in the, in the garden, put away the sword. Right? That's not what we need right now. Why? That's, that's a, an instrument of death. He, he knows that. Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul is loosened from his chains in the Philippian jail and the, the jailer picks up a sword. Right? These are New Testament uses of sword all over and they all are kind of relating to death. He says, don't do that. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. Right? Do you remember? So when he talks about swords, certainly that would have been part of it. And that the government bears this authority of the sword to punish evil through fines, imprisonment, corporal punishment, even death, is authority that's not a a new idea for Paul. If you look back in in the book of Genesis, chapter 9, this is God, right after the flood, speaking to Noah. He's made a a covenant, and here's what he says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, For God made man in his own image. There's a couple things that are set up here. There's an authority set up, governing authority, in human-to-human relationships, and and there's a sword that's given. Now, there's criteria for that sword to be used, right? Blood. If the criteria is met in human-to-human relationships with blood, I think that God has given authority to, some sort of civil authority to use and bear the sword, and they don't bear it in vain. The sword is given for the purpose... Genesis 9, 6, of upholding the dignity of all human beings, the dignity of image bearers. Because what is the, the implication of, of Genesis 9? It's like, that's not just an attack on another person, but on the very image of God that I've put in man. And so God has given governing authorities this sword as a means of avenging the wrongdoer, the evildoer, of carrying out his wrath. And again, what we get with verse 4 is not detailed <laughs> doesn't give us every nuance. How does this look in every circumstance? It gives us a general role of governing authorities as God's servant with no sense of like, here's the exact prescription of the kind of government this needs to look like. He doesn't give us, here's the form and shape of this government. Uh, Here's the prescribed government that you need to work for on earth. He never gives that. What he does say is that they are God's servant for our good by being a terror to evil, and they have a sword that is part of that terror for evil, and they are to commend what is good. And they are to do this with a view of upholding dignity and image bearers as those who, as governing authorities, servants of God, who are accountable to God and under God's reign. And so in, in our culture today where we get a voice this is the role we would want to uphold this is the role we would want to hold up to governing authorities like this is what we think god has made this for now we don't do that in specific forms necessarily and say well actually god has set up government this way it has three branches like that isn't given there are not specific forms given and because the new testament doesn't give them and we don't think that the New Testament is insufficient for us, then we don't say that we necessarily think that from the Scripture we have a specific form of governing authorities and what it's to look like. We have a general role, and we uphold it, and we hold it up in our own lives. And we think then that because the Scripture is not insufficient and God is not going to leave us without something that we need for life and godliness and and living a life fully for the righteousness of God, we don't need any more specific form. And because we don't have more specific form, that, that puts us in some strange spots at times, doesn't it? When we feel threatened, like we're, we're starting to be moved to the margins or there's tension with, with governing authorities and us as individuals. Here's what we know we don't need to move toward. We don't need to move toward, well, we have to have this specific form of government. Why? Because the scripture is not insufficient and it hasn't given it to us, And we don't need to say, hey, we're being pushed to the margins. Now we're going to need a strong Christian government in order to get out of this mess that we're in. We don't need a strong Christian government. We have a strong Christ. He is enough for us. And so what happens then if we think through this is if we don't need something more, we need to trust Christ. He is going to be enough for us. Certainly he knows about living life on the margins and sustaining his people on the margins and all the tensions that they're in and being threatened. And yet he still says, I'm going to build my church. And he doesn't say, here's the specific form of government that that's going to need in order for that church to be built. He says, I'll build it. And that will be built and stay until he returns. We need a strong Christ. And church, we have a strong Christ. So in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, we've seen how strong this Christ is. He's strong. So we have to think all right, this is the role of government. Well, what happens if they don't fulfill their role? Well, at least one thing we could say well, if they don't fulfill their role and they're really terrible governing authorities, even harassing and abusing and murdering, like we can say, Christian, it's going to be all right. Here's why we say that because we know what we are. What is true of us in Christ? No condemnation for us? Destined for glory, life forever with God? There's good news here, even if they are bad governing authorities, because what does it say here? They're God's servants. And when they're in the hands of God, not just on their own, going rogue, doing their own thing, but still under the sovereign will of God, then we can know, hey, they're still serving the purposes of God, that somehow, some way, we don't see it, we don't know how, but He's working all these things according to the counsel of His will, then all of a sudden that we can say, oh, God's. Trustworthy, we can let him deal with this. In fact, he says in Proverbs 21.1, one, he holds the hearts of kings in the palm of his hand. He turns it wherever he wants. Paul knew this. He knew governing authorities not fulfilling their role. He's going to tell them to pay taxes to a an emperor that's going to slice his head off. Like he he knew some of the abuses of authority and of this role. Certainly. Rome wasn't carrying out the role as a governing authority faithfully, right? They weren't doing it all that well all the time. And yet Paul doesn't elaborate. Like, let's talk about all those circumstances and what we do there. He doesn't do that. He never speaks of, here's when you revolt. Here's when you overthrow the government. Here's when you lobby them. Bring them cookies and make sure they, they, they know what you want. Like, he doesn't say when to run for office. He doesn't say, you know, like... need to get in all these influential places. He doesn't do any of that. He never gives a political strategy. Instead, Paul, he pours out his life. He pours out his ministry. He pours out the ink on the page, not on a political strategy, but on forming God's new covenant people as a gospel people. And a people who belong wholly to God and to one another, he wants them to make sure that they are a gospel people. And so he works really hard that they might walk in holiness, grow in Christ-likeness, bear the character of Christ in their lives, live life as community, as those who belong to one another, and do everything they do, whether they eat or drink or be subjected to the governing authorities, they do it all to the glory of God. And because that's what he spills his life, his ministry, and the ink on the page, then that is instructive for us as the church. Probably corrective for us. He sets the priorities, doesn't he? It's not on a lengthy political strategy. It's on a, a deep gospel. Chapters 1 through 11, we go into gospel depths. Seven verses in chapter 13, we talk about governing authorities. That speaks, doesn't it? What does that tell us? How does that instruct us? How does that correct us? And in a way, here's the truth that's the strategy, church. How do we navigate governing authorities in our lives? Well, chapters 1 through 11, that's part of the strategy. Chapter 12, how do we respond to all that God has done for us in Christ? That's the strategy. That's what we do. Paul knew really well that if the tree is good, then the fruit is going to be good too. And so what Paul does is he works really hard to make sure that tree is healthy, that the fruit they were produced might look a lot of different ways, but it will be healthy fruit because it comes from a healthy tree. And so, if the governing authorities are faithful, what do we do? We be subject to them. We, We still do what he said in chapter 12, verse 12: rejoice in hope. Hope's not here, even if they're good. Patient in tribulation. Constant prayer. Well, what do we do if they're not faithful and they're abusive and terrible? Well, chapter 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope. Hope's not here. Still in the future, glory that we're destined for. What do we do? We Patient in tribulation, should they bring it? What do we need to do for them? Be constant in prayer. Our hope is in future glory, our certain destination in Christ Jesus. And so whether they're good, whether they're not good, whether they're faithful, whether they're unfaithful, we know that we can rejoice in hope. We can be patient in tribulation and we can be constant in prayer. Governing authorities may not be faithful to that role, and Paul would still say they're still instituted by God, they're still His servants. And so still, Paul says, here's here's the work you need to do, here's the strategy you need to do, be subject to the governing authority. The strategy is the same. He still knows all those abuses, and he still says be subject. Because he knows that God's authority is behind this. Governing authorities have a legit, God-given role, and because that's true, Paul goes on to reiterate, uh, again, almost a repetition of what he said uh, earlier. But in verse 5, here's what he says. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Be, be subject. And here he adds a little bit of a nuance, right? Be subject for the sake of conscience. A, a conscience that, that can recognize the, the order of God. It recognizes there's some ordained authority, some in-place authorities. And they are on earth, and there is a responsibility. This conscience is bearing witness. There's a responsibility to be subject to the right authorities. And so it goes on to say verse 6. For because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Here's here's a weird thought. Taxes aren't necessarily tyranny, right? They're legit. If the governing authorities are to carry out God's appointed role, then taxes are going to be a part of that. Now, this one, I think, maybe stings for a country where there was an uproar over taxation without representation. I don't think Paul knew what that was. Right? He's like, what's representation? Like, the emperor tells us what to pay, and we pay it. And then the tax collector comes along, supported by the Romans, and they say, actually, pay that and some more, and we're going to take some of it for our own. And he still says to these Christians, pay your taxes. He knew this. Jesus knew this, too, didn't he? Hey. Why aren't you going to, are you going to pay your taxes, Jesus? He says, well, let me see that coin there. Whose image is on it? Caesar's? Yeah, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. You know what that coin was going to? The the same government that was working, using, expending money, tax dollars, in order to put him on a tree. And he still is, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, he also says, render to the Lord's the things that are the Lord's. Not everything is Caesar's. Everything is the Lord's. But under that everything that is the Lord's, there is a a piece of that that's Caesar's under the Lord. And so taxes are due. And so he says, verse 7, Pay all to what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. And respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Just paying taxes isn't all that's owed in this world. And with these governing authorities in mind... Certainly he has them in mind. He didn't just like switch gears to like, I'm not talking about respecting and honoring governing authorities now. That's verses 1 through 6. No, certainly with them in mind, he says, actually there's more owed. Respect and honor are owed as well because these are authorities that have been instituted by God. There's not one that exists apart from the ordaining of God. Now again, Paul says this knowing on this side of Eden that these authorities are imperfect at best. But he still says, give respect where respect is owed, honor to where honor is owed. You need to give it. And before we like, yeah, but I don't know if it's owed, let's think about the conduct of the people of God in history, right? We'll go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is Nebuchadnezzar's conduct worthy of honor and respect? It's pretty, pretty bad. And yet, what do they do to him? They come and they're respectful. They even say, I mean, like, even the way they approach and they say, what? Well, we can't do this. Throw us in the fire. Daniel, like his conduct, the way he respects and honors some really terrible kings in Babylon. Nehemiah, another one who respects it. Like these are these are secular kings. These are ungodly kings, and they respect Jeremiah to an Israelite kings. Like he's respectful to these kings that are really evil too, or we can think of Jesus, like he doesn't come and, and, and lay down the gauntlet everywhere, he gives respect where respect is owed, or Paul, his uh, attitude and demeanor and disposition toward all those who are oppressing some of his life, or, or the apostles and disciples in the book of Acts, there's a rich history of examples of faithfulness to give honor where honor is owed and respect where respect is owed, and, and what this command does is it starts slicing through so much of our culture, doesn't it? If we're going to faithfully carry out this command to give honor where honor is owed, respect where respect is owed, I think what just happened is that this command just sliced through most of the political slogans that we have. I think that this command just decimated party rallying cries that we're going to put on bumper stickers and wear on hats. Because Christians now, if we're going to listen to this and be subject to the governing authority, God himself, Christians couldn't take part in, in some sort of slogan or rallying cry that would dehumanize another person. Whether that's in a slogan for a party to win a campaign or not, we, we couldn't take part in something that would be dehumanizing to another. You know, we couldn't let our language get so foul that we wouldn't give respect to respect is owed and honor to where honor is owed and demon, demonizing our opponents. We might do it under the guise of this is a conspiracy theory. God might call that gossip. And we wouldn't want to take part in those kinds of things unless we knew their truth. We're people of the truth who care about giving honor where honor is owed, respect to where respect is owed. So there's no room for demonizing opponents made in God's image by what we wear, by our rhetoric, by our strategies, because we want to care about the dignity of People made in the image of God. Man, don't we wish that Paul gave more? Maybe you wish that I said less and Paul gave more. But here we are in in a very politicized world. And, And no doubt we would want more details on this, right? Give us more to help us navigate the waters that we're swimming in. Paul's audience probably felt the same. Hey, but you didn't talk about this Hey, Paul, what about this? Like, this just came up. We got a new emperor now. Or Nero is probably the emperor at this time. Like, he's being kind of okay toward Christians at the time that he's writing the Romans, right? But pretty soon he's not going to be okay. And he's going to just kind of flip off, right? And he's just going to go crazy. Oh, well, Paul, you, what about Nero? Like, you didn't tell us. what no, he did. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be, be constant in prayer. The specific role of of government and individuals and how that all works out in every single circumstance and situation is not given. But Paul doesn't feel the need anywhere in the New Testament to go into further qualifications that everyone would have wished for. What he does is he gives this general command, these general principles, this general role that they're supposed to play, and this general kind of respect that's due to the governing authorities. Paul works hard and he expects God's people to be God's people. That's what he's working for. Hey, God's people, be God's people. Here's what God's people should look like. I'm going to give you seven verses of what that should look like with governing authorities. But the other 12 chapters, I've already told you what it looked like to be formed and shaped and molded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how do we navigate all this? What's the strategy moving forward with the governing authorities? Well, we could start back with chapter 12, verse 12. That's a pretty good place. Right? Right? Rejoice in hope. Our hope's not here and now. We have, we have certain hope in the risen Christ, and, and we know that in him we're destined for glory. Oh, we, we have tribulation. He says, be patient there. Endure that thing. It won't last forever. It's going to come to an end. It knows an expiration date. What, what do we need to do while, while we're being patient and, and rejoicing? I pray constantly. Isn't that the strategy that he gives to Timothy? Hey, Timothy, you're starting a church in some weird times because that's not new to our age. And and here's what he tells him. Here's Here's how the church could be helped. First of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, who desires that all people be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Here's the strategy, Timothy does not say when to revolt he doesn't say when to pay your taxes when he doesn't, doesn't get into any of that doesn't say here's, here's how you get your political maneuvering in and, and become a powerhouse in the Roman culture and in the Roman guy he doesn't do any of that he says first here's the first strategy pray Is that a strategy and, and then there's the second strategy right he wants us to live peaceful and godly lives but it, but but there's a greater desire here. God, God wants all to be saved. And so what's the church to do in the midst of that? Well, he hadn't given them a political strategy that. He said proclaim. Pretty good strategy. Pray, proclaim. We do this as people who are following Christ, right? He, he knew navigating this stuff was going to be tricky at times and we were going to feel some tensions and we were going to feel like we're, we're only facing tribulation, that we're going to need him in the middle of all this stuff and, and yet he navigated all this in tricky times with, uh, hey, what are we to do with Caesar's coin? Well, give to Caesar and then he was going to be on the tree by the, the means of those kinds of coins and he navigated all this stuff and guess what happened to Christ? He came out the other side. What does he do on the other side? He promises, hey, you follow me, I'll get you to the other side too. I'm the great high priest. Do you need mercy in a time of need? I'm, that's what I'm here for. I'm leading the church forward. He says in Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given to me. And he's the one we follow. And we know that one day, here's what's going to happen. The reality that all are moving toward, regardless of background and current social or political standing, we're all moving towards Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Let's pray together.
2: God, we are reeling again from your word. And how much different are your thoughts and desires for your people than how we actually think and live. We can't come away from this pretending that we are not conformed to this world and the way that it thinks. We have to repent and admit that we need to be transformed by your word. We need to change the way that we think. We need to change the way that we talk. We use our tongue this morning to sing praises to our Lord and Savior. And we use the same tongue to say terrible things about the governing authorities that you've put over us and anyone who might like them or not like them or disagree with us about any policy and it's evil. It's not okay. We need to repent of misplaced hope, of thinking that we can win a nation to you through political power and through more righteous laws, as if laws can make a people righteous. There was a time when your plan was that the people who belonged to you actually did have every specific law to govern their everyday lives coming directly from the Bible, from your book, and nobody did it. The kings were evil. Things did not go well. They were idolaters all the same. And we forget that that happens. And think that if we could just go back to some good old days or if we could just have this or that, that then everyone would agree with us and everything would be fine. The history of your people is a history of opposition and oppression. And for a lot of people, God, it still is some of your people. be killed today because they believe in you, Jesus. There are people in this world today who want to get together and worship you, but it might not be safe because their governing authorities are so corrupt. But when I turn on the radio or turn on the TV, it sounds like we live there. But we don't think about them. We think about how terrible things are. For us and we put our hope in this world and we call our church sojourn to remind ourselves that this world is not our home but we don't think that way most of the time God help us be people who pray who plead with you for the souls of our neighbors who plead with you that you would do a work of your spirit, that righteousness would reign on this earth and that your church would gain ground every day and that every day we would add to the number of people who love you, Jesus. That transforms a culture when we pray and when we proclaim and when we obey and live a holy and godly and peaceful life. God, we're sorry that we're so worldly in our thinking. Thank you for forgiving us and being patient with us. Will you reign in our minds? Will your kingdom loom large in our hearts? And may our hope be completely set on ushering in that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confesses that you are the Lord Jesus every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That is our hope. Our hope is assured. Help us to turn down the volume on this world and be about the business that you've called us to, making disciples. And we can do that in a million ways. We should care about politics. We should love our neighbor as ourselves and work for just laws, and sometimes that might even be against what we want. It might not be best for us, but it might be best for more people, God. Let us put others above ourselves and do everything that we do to your glory. In your name I pray, amen.